This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, August 18th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Telluride Medical Center nears financial collapse. Grazing movie ambles into town. Eyes to ears with Bella Eatman. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, Koto's programming is informative, enlightening, and entertaining. We remain steadfastly non-commercial and independent, like the community we serve. Show your support for your community radio station by calling 970-728-4333 or going to koto.org to donate. And thank you. The future of the Telluride Regional Medical Center is on thin financial ice. We know that our cash is going to run out sometime early this fall. We project that we will run out of dollars in our bank account on on or about October 27th. That's Paul Reich, chair of the hospital district board, presenting at an intergovernmental meeting this week. By that point, we we will have used all of the funds that the Telluride Hospital District Foundation has been able to raise. We will have exhausted our lines of credit. We will have exhausted all of the county revenues that we currently receive through the mill levies. Um, and we will, you know, quite honestly, be out of money. Reich and Dr. Deanna Colliker, Director of Emergency and Trauma Services at the Med Center and Interim CEO, went before the local governments to request funds. So we have asked for each of the four entities, the town of Mountain Village, the town of Telluride, San Miguel County, and TMVOA uh, for $500,000 each, um, which will address our short-term cash problem that we have that will we'll come home uh, to roost on uh, around the end of October. Reich notes the governmental and TMVOA funding would be a fix in the short term. The hospital district board is also considering going to voters this fall for a 4.25 mill levy increase. That would raise approximately $3.8, $3.9 million a year uh, in in taxing dollars. And what that would cost would be if if a person owned a million-dollar house, with the current valuation, they would um, owe $224 a month additional. So about $280 a year in additional taxes if you have a million dollar house. Reich says the funding challenges for the med center aren't new or unique. One of our biggest challenges is in the healthcare sphere is declining reimbursements from health insurance providers. Um, We, while health insurance companies are charging you more in premiums and raising your deductibles, they are paying us less for every time we see a patient. Colliker says the med center lost $1.4 million last year. It's on track to lose the same again this year. She highlights the challenges in receiving funds from insurance companies. In the winter time, we had a 72-year-old woman who came to us who had had an acute stroke. She couldn't speak and couldn't move one side of her body. We did CAT scans. We communicated immediately with a neurologist at Swedish Medical Center. We um, gave her medications to lower her blood pressure, which was dangerously high. And on the advice of that neurologist, we gave her TPA, which is the clot-busting medicine for strokes. We then flew her to the stroke center in Denver to continue her care, and she recovered. 
Out of all of those things that we did here at the medical center, we got paid for less than 20%. She says a major struggle is the med center's designation. It's not a hospital. So in the eyes of many of our payers, um, we are not a hospital and therefore we cannot provide hospital care or even ER care. We are an office in many providers' eyes, and that's insurance providers. And so with this woman who we did a CAT scan and consulted with a neurologist and gave her a medication that costs us over $8,500 for a dose of that medicine, her insurance company said, you can't do a CAT scan in an office. And we do not allow that medication for office providers to give. That leads the Med Center to its long-term solution for funding challenges, building a new critical access hospital at Society Turn. And I hope that everybody who is in this room and who can hear my voice can hear that our long-term solution is getting that piece of property so we can build a new facility. A new facility is going to allow us to become a sustainable entity that can continue providing all the care in this little isolated community that we all call home and many people call paradise when they come visit. But a new facility is what is going to be the solution long term. But I recognize that is years away. And so that's why we need to concentrate on some short and midterm solutions. Kolliker and Reich acknowledge funding hardships are not solely on the insurance companies. The med center has had trouble with billing properly and collecting the full money they need. But Dr. Kolliker says with the new billing company, the med center is on the right track. They are going to provide us with the oversight that we need on a claims basis to make sure that we are getting everything that we are supposed to based on contract. The town of Mountain Village approved the funding request at $650,000 at its meeting on Thursday on the basis that the med center fulfills a set of to-be-determined conditions. The town of Telluride will consider the funding request at its August 22nd meeting. San Miguel County will hear the request at a later date. If the med center goes to voters for a mill levy increase and it passes in November, the hospital district would begin collecting those funds in March 2024. Peter Bick has been a filmmaker for decades. Along the way, he's become a professor at Arizona State University, an advocate for climate solutions, and a frequent collaborator with and communicator for the science community. Ten plus years ago, Bick became interested in how soil will affect climate change and in how cattle grazing patterns could spell trouble or present a solution for the global climate picture. Amidst his curiosity, Bick says, I felt this need for science. I could see it. Like there was very little science done on this type of grazing, but I found a lot of scientists who wanted to do that. His curiosity led to conversation, and those conversations led to a meeting of minds in 2014 at Arizona State University. And a lot of people in the room had not met other types of scientists that were doing other types of things that all made up the, the, the ecosystem of science that we put together to study the ecosystem of farms. Soil experts, bug experts, bug bird experts, um, grazing experts like that greenhouse gas experts. Though scientists began to run models, they traveled across the country and made observations and collaborated with farmers. 
In the meantime, Bick began to roll tape, documenting the process of inquiry. That process takes time, in this case, 10 years. Bick amassed a lot of tape. It's a decade. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. I, I know I wouldn't have started, I wouldn't have wanted to start it if I knew how long it was going to take, but that's just the way things seem to be. The result is a full scientific account of a rotational grazing technique, which Bick details in a four-part documentary series titled Roots So Deep. The film follows scientists and farmers adopting this new grazing pattern, which Bick calls adaptive multi-paddock, or AMP, grazing. And the adaptive way is basically emulating the way the bison moved across the Great Plains. Mm. And so what they would do is they'd be in one herd, they'd be packed tight together, they'd eat about half the forage, because that's the part that was tasty, and then they'd move on for more food, and they'd leave that other half of forage there, They'd stomp on it so it covers the soil completely, which keeps the soil cool, which keeps the microbes in the soil thriving. And they also, their manure and their urine was evenly spread. This technique prepares pasture lands to rebound and regrow vigorously as grasses thrive on the manure left behind and draw down carbon into the soil. Although amp grazing differs from conventional farming, it's by no means new. Bick points out it largely just copies how bison would move across the Great Plains. It follows the guidance of nature. So it's not prescriptive. It's not like you do this on May 5th and you do that on May 10th. It's very much adaptive and working with nature. And and the farmers, when they adopt it, they, they love it. They love it. Bick has now taken the project on tour to share the findings of the study and screen roots so deep across the country. Next Monday, August 21st, he will be in Telluride at the Sheridan Opera House to share the work in collaboration with Mountain Film, Telluride Science, and the Telluride Institute. The free screening begins at 6.30 with a Q&A to follow. And Bick adds, I'll be around all weekend if people see me walking on the street, we can talk. After that, the film tour moves on to its next stop, perhaps at Greener Pastures. The days are getting cooler, but in this installment of Eyes to Ears, Telluride High School's Bella Eatman finds the warmth of the day. Have a listen. Hello, listeners. My name is Bella Eatman, and welcome to the Kodo segment, Eyes to Ears. In this segment, I describe paintings I find interesting from our local art galleries to you. And today, I will talk about a painting I saw in the Slate Gray Art Gallery by Mark Bowles called Warmth of the Day. A solid, warm strip of brown sets itself as the base of the painting, like the center of transition from forest dirt to desert dust. Above that, lies the row of mountains painted and filled in a bright tangerine peel-like orange, which is thus outlined at the top in an equally vibrant line of green. Behind this stand even taller mountains, shaded by distance from us, the viewer, and closeness to the hot-colored sky, thus appearing to us a mountain filled with red wine. The sky from behind and above the mountains glow like the wild licking flames of a campfire from the golden yellow to the red violet. 
This gradation is painted with multiple tools and brush strokes that creates a scene like a blur of yellow, purple, and pink horses racing across the sky for some, and like festering, nearly gone storm clouds of mauve for others. At this time, paintings such as this and many others exist in the slate gray art gallery waiting to be observed. So I do recommend stopping by at some point sometime to see Mark Bowles' works. When I saw this piece, it reminded me of some nights spent in Mancus. Standing outside on the porch as the wind breezes past my goosebump-riddled limbs, I watch the beautiful sunset as it clearly shows the magnificent, blazing, warm colors contrasted against the shadowed silhouette of the sleeping Ute mountain. Hopefully you, the listener, have been able to observe something beautiful today. But this has been Koto's Eyes to Ears. My name is Bella Eatman, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Summer is migrating into fall, and the Wilkinson Public Library is offering a chance to find birds before they nestle down for winter. Led by bird expert Katie Treese, the next walk will meet on Tuesday, August 22nd at 9 a.m. at the Pine Street Bridge. Walks will not be vigorous, but join prepared for light movement and a couple of hours outdoors in the calm of the Telluride morning, listening to birdsong. Binoculars and bird books are optional, and the library has some available for checkout. The Telluride region is full of dedicated community members. Each year, the Telluride Foundation recognizes some of those people through its Volunteer of the Year program. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the award, which honors members of the community who unselfishly contribute to the improvement of the region through volunteerism, community service, or philanthropy. The Telluride Foundation says the award aims to recognize, quote, local heroes who donate their time and energy to the community. Nominations are currently open for this year's Volunteer of the Year, and the Foundation is looking to the public for help. Nominees must be a community member in San Miguel, Ure, West Montrose Counties, and Rico. Nomination forms are available at telluridefoundation.org. The state's Department of Education released annual assessment data this week. Colorado students did better last year than the previous year, but they're still lagging behind pre-pandemic performance levels. Female students, Black and Latino students, students with language or financial barriers, and those with disabilities are all lagging behind their peers. Education Commissioner Susanna Cordova expressed concern over the gender gap. It's very good news that we're seeing the rebound for boys, uh, but we need to have a better understanding of what's happening with um, girls in the state and to devote more focus and support. Cordova says this data will serve as a roadmap for where resources are needed most. School participation also improved last year, but still trails behind 2019 levels.
A new report says cows and their feed crops are using an unsustainable amount of water from the Colorado River. KUNC's Alex Hager has more. The D.C.-based nonprofit Food and Water Watch said Colorado River Basin states are using 70 percent more water than the national average per acre of farmland. That's largely due to alfalfa hay, which is used to feed cows. Amanda Starbuck is a researcher with the group. She said alfalfa consumed more than two trillion gallons last year. It's not going to be tenable 5, 10, 20 years down the road to keep growing large amounts of alfalfa, which is a very water-thirsty crop, to keep having mega dairies in you know, desert climates. That's just not going to be tenable. The report calls for new federal laws that would halt new and expanded dairy farms and give farmers the tools they need to transition to new crops. I'm Alex Hager. Amid the mounting pressures of climate change and habitat loss, protected areas like national parks and monuments can be a refuge for wildlife, including the very tiniest. Curious folks from around the region came together recently during the first annual Bears Ears Butterfly Count in Utah. Organizers say citizen science events help document diverse species and can inspire new advocates for the conservation of those species. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KZMU's Molly Marcello reports. On the side of the road in Bears Ears National Monument, a group of about 10 people are taking in the landscape. There are lovely canyons of nice, vibrant red with brush all over them. They're lush green and we have nice yellow flowers. That's Melissa De La Paz. We're making these observations because... Well, we've been instructed to. And everyone's around looking at this landscape, and there's people out here with nets (laughs) trying to catch butterflies, but so far failing. (laughs) That's right. This group is trying to carefully and gracefully observe and catch butterflies. I'm looking for a shape that doesn't look like it belongs on the flower there. I'm like, yep, there's a weird-looking triangle sitting on top of that flower. Probably a butterfly. Rob Hanawacker, an expert at spotting and catching butterflies. In this little group, he has the most experience with it. And just a few paces from where we're standing, he spots something. One checkered white. No, Becker's white with the bee. Becker's white, a butterfly known from Mexico to Canada. This one flies off, evading capture from Hanawacker's net. Because it was upset I got its name wrong. This is the first annual Bears Ears butterfly count a chance for citizen scientists to learn along with experts like Hanawacker. He describes himself as a naturalist and has led these types of counts for years in Bryce Canyon, Grand Canyon, and the LaSalle Mountains near Moab. We have a, a neat concept here with uh, uh, what's called uh, island biogeography. Um, we have these high country areas that are surrounded by arid grasslands, juniper pinyon, and, and pretty stark desert. So these little high country areas are really like islands, and uh, you'll have populations that'll fluctuate, and they're much more vulnerable to uh, environmental change. So noticing what's out there now, even in an informal butterfly gathering, can be important. The Xerxes Society advocates for conservation of invertebrates. And they call butterflies valuable pollinators that support the health of ecosystems. Like many other insect species, butterflies are experiencing declines. 
The Xerxes Society estimates 19% of butterfly species in the U.S. are at risk of extinction. And it's not just the ones with special habitat needs. Butterfly counts can help us keep track of like the species that are in the area and like why we're protecting the area. Ricky Begay, volunteer manager with the Bears Ears Partnership. Folks might know the organization by its old name, Friends of Cedar Mesa. Butterflies are experiencing changes due to habitat loss, climate change, disease, pesticides, invasive plants. Protected areas like parks and monuments can be a refuge. Yeah. So this is the first um, Bears Ears um, butterfly count that I know of. Um, I really want to bring the community out and show them like what life is out here and kind of showing what we're trying to protect and like what species are here and what species are rare or like what new species are coming into the area. I want to make sure like the next generation knows what was here because um, they might never ever see it again. The gay calls himself an introvert. But he's the curious type of introvert that loves bringing people together, especially over the natural world. He organized this count, and he's excited because there are people here who work for arches, canyonlands, natural bridges, and Mesa Verde National Parks, like De La Paz. Okay, so we have um, five white butterflies, and then we also have five male checkered white butterflies. She's reviewing the list of butterfly sightings so far, and she says she's here to gain broader knowledge about this region. At Mesa Verde, she's working on a trails crew, doing lots of whetstone work. And so we wet the concrete and we wet the like the pavement and we're going to stove stuff like that. And all the butterflies rush in and drink the water. And like there's some really nice blue ones and some white ones as well. I'm just like, wow, I, I wish I knew what they were. <laughs> yeah, we notice them, especially when we're working with water. Troy Rudy brings one to her attention. It's the first time he's held a butterfly, and he's doing it very carefully with forceps. It's called the variegated fritillary. You can't see the backside of its wings, but it's like orange and yellow. It's really pretty. Um, there were two of them pretty close to each other, and he's mentioning that's kind of common. They're, they'll hang out together, but then they'll also harass one another, so... It's kind of a sibling relationship. <laughs> Butterflies are a type of moth, and they're easier to count than others because they carry out their business in the daytime, just like humans. Hannah Wacker says researchers and volunteers in our region have documented 130 species of butterflies in southeast Utah alone. They range from the common to the endemic, meaning species known only to exist here and nowhere else in the world. There's certainly some species that have very isolated populations. They're going extinct. There's some butterflies that are going extinct. They're more adapted to the last epoch or even the epoch prior, which was the Pleistocene epoch. Um, so that's kind of like seeing a, a ground sloth, a giant ground sloth, you know, um, to actually have those kinds of butterflies still in existence. Hanawacker tries not to get too precious about species. He advocates for the protection of the entire ecosystem, not just because of a few species within it. But checking them off, it's clear, that's kind of the fun of it. As the day goes on, we gain elevation, where the plant nectar is juicier, and there's more and more butterflies. Um, I've got one white line sphinx butterfly which is the one that kind of looks like a hummingbird. I've got two gray-haired streak. The Colorado hair streak, the great spangled fritillary, the southwestern fritillary, Wadamider's admiral. 
Observing them is one thing, but catching them is another. <laughs> um, I'm still learning. I mean, butterflies are kind of not really predictable. <laughs> they try to avoid, like, big people moving, I would say. Begay again. He's holding a butterfly net and showing me his technique. Usually butterflies like to fly upwards, not downwards or sideways. So it's pretty easy to catch them like that if they're just kind of chilling. It's all about being patient and moving slowly, keeping your nose to the plants. I realize on this count that getting to know butterflies is all about getting to know plants. We learn that Prince's plume and penstemons attract swallowtail butterflies. Sand buckwheat at the right time could bring in a rare Ellis's blue butterfly. And then there's the rock goldenrod, a favorite plant for hair streak butterflies. And it's on a rock goldenrod that we find a very small, very colorful hair streak. Here's Hannah Wacker. The Siva juniper hair streak. Our little Siva subspecies here, I think, is the prettiest of all the subspecies of juniper hair streaks. <laughs> Hopefully nobody in other regions gets upset with that. I think it's true. We have all kinds of variations of tans and greens. On the upper side, it's usually um, beautiful browns. The hair streaks get their name from little hairs that extend beyond their hind wing. So it's thought if a bird were flying by, it would think the head is right here where the movement is. But the butterfly scoots on that way. It's so tiny. It's teeny tiny. (laughs) Beautiful little... um, sort of patterning, uh, light-colored silvery patterning, the lines. And then you, even though it's a little beat up on the end, you can still see the tail somehow survived. Hannah Wacker removes the forceps and the teeny tiny butterfly rests on his finger. It's just like sitting on your finger to like catch its bearings, I guess? I think so. I think you're right. But what is nice though, it seems like if you handle the butterfly okay, uh, oftentimes they go right back to what they were doing before. And, uh, and that's really a good sign. The butterfly takes flight searching for another nectar-filled plant in Bears Ears National Monument. Yeah, two new species for the list. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for showers and thunderstorms tonight with gradually clearing skies and a low near 50 degrees. Saturday should bring sun in the morning and thunderstorms in the afternoon with a high near 75. Saturday night, expect mostly cloudy skies with a low near 50. Sunday calls for sunny skies, a high near 75 degrees, and windy conditions. Sunday night brings a slight chance of rain with otherwise partly cloudy skies and a low near 50. This has been the news for Friday, August 18th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our summer fun drive. A huge thank you to John Adler, Max Yancey, Mick Varner, Kathleen Cole, Amanda Baltzley, Alan Green, Peter McGrew, Patrick Sheehan, Stuart Allen, Ruthie Boehner, Mallory Eddy, Michael Haberkorn, Don and Jane Berman, Wally and Nancy Hall, Peter Hart, Margaret Reagan, Kevin Walsh, Rob Sabom, Sam Spencer, Heidi Sarazen, Shannon Stokes, Kevin Deardorff, Dennis Dexter, Thomas Calvo, 
Jeffrey Kendrian, and Chris Clark. Thank you all so much.